As you're seated, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. That's where we'll pick up this morning. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word. And we just ask for your help. We need you this morning to understand, to see, to feel what you have recorded, what what happened. And so we ask you to give us everything we need. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak. Call us to repent. Call us to believe again in the gospel. And maybe for some, for the first time, to truly come alive in Christ through faith and repentance. We ask you to do all this for the glory of one name alone. In his name we pray. Amen. In Calvary Love, John Piper writes this. He held the world between his thumb and finger like a tender grape. And when the spike was driven through his hand, his muscles flinched with world-creating force. And crimson wine dripped from his fingertips. But with omnipotent resolve... He neither dropped nor crushed his grape. A vivid portrayal of the suffering, the tenderness, the victory, all found in the cross of Jesus Christ. I think there is a tendency when we get to this part of the life and ministry of Jesus, the passion, the suffering of his last week, to just be overwhelmed in sadness and sorrow. That, that he would have to endure this, this, this beautiful, strong, mighty, gracious, kind, compassionate, truth-proclaiming, faithful Son of God, that He would have to go through this. Not for His sins, but for our sins. And it's, it's hard to, to go there. It's hard to really think about what He has suffered and what He endured without emotionally just being a wreck. I know when the Passion of Christ film came out about 10 years ago, probably the only film on the life of Christ that got as as close as possible to visually portraying the suffering that he endured, physical suffering. And the, the horror is hard to watch. And I've never watched it since. It's, it's not wrong to feel this heaviness, this sorrow, this sadness over what Christ had to endure. But what I'm praying for us today and next Sunday as we look at Jesus on the cross and the flogging and the scourging, these final hours of his life, I'm hoping that we, as accurately as possible, can, can see and feel the pain and suffering and feel the weight of that, but, but go beyond that to the joy, to the strength, to the victory Uh, We saw that earlier when Brock read Philippians 2. He did humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on the cross, so that he would be exalted, so that one day every knee will bow before him, willingly or not. Probably most accurately visualized, in my opinion, by C.S. Lewis in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan willingly, lovingly gives himself over to the White Witch, in the place of Edmund, so that he could be free from her clutches 
As you know in the story from the eyes of Susan and Lucy, it was pure horror as he goes toward the, the goons of the white witch and willingly lays down on the stone table and they overwhelm him and humiliate him and mock him and eventually kill him. And it appears to be that there's no more hope. What has happened? How can Aslan be dead? Until the next morning when he shows up alive and tells the girls that he was operating under an older magic that the white witch doesn't even know about. That if someone willingly, lovingly gives, them play, gives themselves in the, in the substitute as a, in the place of someone who's done wrong, then even death can be reversed. So in his suffering... There was strength and victory and joy. I, like I've tried to imagine this week, what are some life situations where we feel this mixture of gladness and joy, yet sorrow and pain? And it's, it's hard. It's, it's such a unique event. Um, talking to Jennifer about it, she, she pointed me to childbirth. You know, for the mom, there is pain, humiliation, apparently. I don't know. Not a mom. Um, even if it's a you know, natural delivery, C-section, whatever. You're, you're there in the hospital. Here you are for all the world to see. And how do you endure that to have one kid, much less multiple kids, because you get to take home that little bundle of joy? Because of the joy and the beauty and the hope there is in that child. So that, that might give you a little bit of an idea of this mixture of glad sorrow. So let's move into the text and, and just ask the Spirit of God to help us to see this. And actually we begin in verse 15 of chapter 15, where after Jesus was tried by Pilate, after he was found innocent... Pilate, as we looked at last week, was under heavy pressure from the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish people to do with Jesus what they wanted him to do with Jesus. And he had no good relationship with the Jews, didn't have the entire time he was governor. They had had many run-ins. And so keeping the peace was like number one rule. If you're a Roman governor over a province, the Romans didn't want possible insurrections or rebellions. And so here's Pilate with an innocent man. So let's appeal to this tradition that I've created, this festival tradition where I will release one of the prisoners to the people. And surely they will choose this innocent man over Barabbas, the murderous, rebellious man. But the crowd, spurred on by Satan himself uh, and, the, and the religious leaders, call for Barabbas to be released. And so in verse 15 of chapter 15, it tells us, So Jesus, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So what does that mean? Mark and the, really the other gospel writers are very economical in their words concerning the, the suffering, the passion of Christ, the physical suffering that he endured. Um, they, they don't go into tons of detail. And the, and the reason is the original audience in the first century didn't need tons of detail. Like they saw it. He, all he had to say was scourging, and they knew what that meant. Crucifixion. They knew what that meant. They knew what that involved. Kind of like I haven't watched the, the Passion of Christ since I saw it in the movie theater. I don't need to see that again. I got it. And so um, if you lived then, you knew. We didn't live then. So, so what did it mean? We need a little bit more description of what scourging means. Another word for this was flogging or flagellum. This is the famous cat of nine tails. This whip that had braids of leather on the end of it with bone and metal woven into the whip. And the purpose of the cat of nine tails when they, would, when they would flog or scourge a criminal would be for the whip to embed with chunks of bone and metal into the skin, the back, the sides, the, even the legs and hips of the criminal and grab onto flesh and actually rip the flesh off. 
And uh, th- that was the whole purpose. It wasn't just humiliation because they would be naked or possibly sometimes the Romans were sensitive to Jewish sensibilities. They would allow a Jewish criminal to remain with a loincloth on. Either way, Jesus may have been naked. He may have had a loincloth. Either, either way, it's humiliating. You're there before people being flogged, being ripped apart by this cat of nine tails. There's no limit on the number of lashes. The purpose of this was to humiliate, shame, as well as weaken the criminal before the crucifixion. Often so much skin would be removed that bones and entrails and guts would be exposed. Historians have written about this. It was so horrible that women were not allowed to view this. The Roman emperor later in the first century Domitian, known for his persecution of Christians, known for killing his own brother, not a nice guy, said that it is a horrific brutality, the scourging of someone. Jesus at this point has already been roughed up by the Sanhedrin back at the end of chapter 14 where they governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, more than likely, this scourging and mocking all happened in the governor's palace, also known as the Praetorium. This would not have been in public, but within the walls of Pilate's compound. An entire battalion could have been as many as 600 Roman soldiers. These guys are already amped up because the city is filled with Jewish pilgrims by the thousands who have come from surrounding areas to celebrate the Passover festival. They're already tense because these Jews cause trouble. I mean, Barabbas is arrested. We don't know when that rebellion happened, but he's in prison for, for leading and helping lead a rebellion. They're already on edge. And now before these brutal killing machines, Roman soldiers, who are already on edge, they bring this man who claims to be a king, who claims to have a kingdom. At least that's what they are saying about him. What are we going to to do with him? He's from from where? Nazareth of Galilee? A carpenter's son? And he thinks he's royalty? Like few, if, if any of these soldiers probably knew of the works of Christ, the power that he's demonstrated, the might that he's demonstrated, even if they had heard of the works of Christ, they're thinking, there's 600 of us, there's one of you, we're going to show you who's king. Now you're under the hand and the fist of Rome. Now he'll bow under the might and weight of Rome. In fact, we'll mock his kingship. Someone get an old ragged purple cloth and put it on his naked body. They'll give him a crown made of gold leaf or greenery like the Roman emperors would wear, but get a thorny branch of an anchitus shrub or a palm spine. Let's ram it down on his head, digging the spikes into his skull to feel the weight of his supposed reign. And they mockingly fall before him. Again, Mark puts an accurate confession unknowingly in the mouth of his mockers. Hail, King of the Jews. Yep, that's who he is. They were mocking and imitating a well-known designation for Caesar, Ave Caesar. This guy thinks he's a king, but no king allows himself to be treated like this unless he's a defeated king. 
and they punch him, fall before him, and strike him on the head with this bamboo-type reed and spit on him. And they fulfill all of the suffering that was due the one who would bear the sins of mankind. And when they are done, and Jesus is probably only alive because of the sheer force of his will to finish this, they send him out with this crucifixion detail. Four soldiers and a centurion, the man who has charge over a hundred soldiers. That's where we pick up in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Crucifixion, a form of capital punishment so cruel, so humiliating that it created a word, excruciating. X means out of the cross, cruciating, crucifix. Something to describe a pain that is beyond understanding. We, I don't know how often you use the word excruciating, but more than likely no one in here has really been in excruciating pain when you look at what the word means. The cross was originally associated with the Medes and Persians and later the Greeks, but it was the Romans who perfected it as the worst way to die. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said it's the most wretched way to die. It's public, it's on the side of public roads as a deterrent to others. Like imagine you coming down 165 to get on I-20 and there out in the grassy field, there are people, local criminals, hanging on crosses, publicly dying. That would be effective. That would be an effective deterrent to crime, to know that that could be the outcome of my life. The criminals were usually naked to maximize the shame Sometimes Jews, as I mentioned, would be allowed to keep a loincloth. It was so horrible that Roman citizens were excluded from crucifixion. So Peter the Jew is crucified upside down because he doesn't want to be crucified the same way Jesus was. He didn't feel like he was worthy of it. Paul, the Roman citizen, is beheaded. The cross would take the shape of either an X, a capital T, or in the case of Jesus, Jesus like a lowercase t. And we primarily know it was a lowercase t because the board was nailed above him with the inscription, King of the Jews. Three different languages. And the criminal would be forced to carry the beam on which they would be nailed or tied from the prison to the public location for his death. Jesus has been up all night, weakened from illegal trials, already suffering emotional and mental anguish from the garden on. And now all of these beatings are so severe, he's just too weak to carry this 100-pound beam. So they get this man from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, a North African. You get over here, you carry this cross. Now Mark alone mentions the two sons, uh, Alexander and Rufus. And we're not 100% certain, but this Rufus could be the same Rufus mentioned as being part of the Church of Rome in Romans 16, 13. It would be kind of neat if Mark is writing this to the Roman church, and there in the crowd is Rufus, whose dad was the first person to literally take up his cross and follow Jesus. And they took him to the place of the skull, Golgotha, a place 
outside the walls of the city. Currently, the location, historians tell us, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But at that time, it's a busy road. And once they're there, they would either tie or nail, in the case of Jesus, the criminal to the crossbeam. They would take forked poles and lift the beam high into the air and then place it on the vertical post into notches where it would rest. Sometimes the cross would be just high enough to get their feet off the ground. Sometimes they would raise them up higher if they wanted to make more of a public spectacle of the criminal. We know Jesus was higher because later on they would have to use a hyssop branch to extend a sponge to him when he was thirsty. Nails would go through his hands and then take his feet together and nail them into the bottom part of the cross. They would either be a piece of wood under his feet or under his bottom which would allow the criminal to lift themselves up. And as painful as that is, nailing their hands and feet, as probably a lot of you know, had nothing to do with the death of the criminal. Very little blood loss from doing that. Death by crucifixion was death by asphyxiation, a loss of breath, suffocating. For a while, the criminal could keep pushing themselves up to grab their breath. As you're hanging, you're slumping, your lungs are collapsing. You push yourself up, You can breathe. You collapse. You breathe. You can't breathe. But then weakened by dehydration, weakened by exposure to the elements, weakened from the flogging and scourging, eventually there's no more energy to push yourself up. And you no longer can breathe. It could be hours in the case of Jesus. It could be days. Often scavenging birds would begin to attack the criminals before they would even die. Jesus is brought out to Golgotha, and he's, in verse 23, he's offered some relief. How about some wine mixed with myrrh? Wine, very relaxing, settles you down, makes you sleepy. Myrrh, basically, are narcotic. How about pain meds, Jesus? You can choose an easier way, Jesus. Take some pain, go numb. And Mark is very clear. He did not take it. He wanted total cognition over himself and to the very end, because as we'll see next week, his ministry is not over. He's not done. There's still work to do. And then around the third hour, Jewish time began at 6 a.m. That's the first hour. The third hour would be around 9 a.m. Jesus is hung on the cross, and and as though he didn't suffer enough already, here come more mockers in verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. First, those who passed by mocked him. They made fun of him regarding the statement of the temple. They, they drew this from his interrogation before the Sanhedrin, where they tried to find witnesses to make up false claims that Jesus says he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days with something that wasn't made with human hands. And even though the charges didn't stick, these men were aware of it, probably were in the meeting, and were making fun of him about it. The chief priests, these highly respected high priests, Men of renown, men who were seen as leaders of the people. They're, they're just out there with the rabble-rousers. They're, they're out there with the people, making fun of Jesus. Why don't you come down? You saved others. You can't save yourself. If you would come down off the cross, now we would believe. 
Even the two criminals, even though one would later repent, they begin the process by mocking him. Now, first of all, even if Jesus would have hopped down off the cross, these guys would have never believed. More miracles and works of power, they did not need to believe in him. What else did they need? What else could he do? He's already raised the dead. He's already fed 15,000, 20,000 people from nothing, basically. Like, what else did they, he need to do to prove he was God in the flesh? Once a heart is hardened to the extent that theirs was hardened, more evidence will not help. Unless the Lord softens the heart and opens their eyes, more evidence they don't need. There are some we will encounter who don't need more evidence. They need the Spirit of God to do in them what only the Spirit of God can do. And we can't. It doesn't mean we give up. We love, we pray. But even Jesus says you don't cast your pearls before swine or give what is holy to dogs. There is a discernment in which more gospel proclamation will only heap more judgment upon a person. It's not an easy call to make. Like we don't know when someone has crossed that line. They're beyond the, the redeeming power of Christ. That they're, they're just, their heart is completely hard and they're shut off from God's grace and mercy. We don't know. So we assume into their dying breath they can believe. But they don't need more evidence. They need the Spirit of God to give them life. Secondly, there are, is tons of irony here. He can't save himself even though he saved others. That's exactly why he won't come down off the cross. It's not a can or can't issue. It's a will or won't issue. And he won't come down off the cross because he could save himself. But if he comes off the cross to save himself, he can't save others. He won't save others. We'll spend more time on this next week. But Jesus came to die. The cost of sin was death. Going all the way back to Genesis 3. God told Adam and Eve, if you break my one command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You will surely die. And they rebelled and they died. They were immediately spiritually dead, cut off from relationship with God. They were eventually cut off from the presence of God as they were kicked out of the garden. And then eventually they physically died. They were really cut off from God in the hope of redemption, in the hope of being saved, even though Adam and Eve were redeemed. But if Jesus is going to take our place and substitute himself for us, he would have to be cut off, which is the essence of death. And to not go through with his death would be to circumvent the plan of salvation. And while he would save his life, he would forfeit our salvation from God's wrath. And so he stays. Not because of the nails, as it's famously been said, but because of his love and his desire to glorify his Father. And in all of this, we see extreme suffering and anguish, physical suffering and pain that we can't even imagine. Mental anguish and pain from the accusations and the mockery and the torment and the weight of bearing the sins of mankind and absorbing the wrath of his father. The shame and humiliation of being accused, yet innocent. Like, you know how much we justify ourselves when someone thinks we've done wrong and we really know we haven't? Nobody shouts louder than we shout about ourselves. Yet he said nothing. The Eastern culture then and now is a shame-based culture. There's nothing more important than your name and your reputation and saving face. To be humiliated and have your name mocked and ridiculed is, is torture. 
emotional anguish, to be abandoned by everyone, to be ridiculed, to be left alone, even to see his followers abandon him in fear. He knows they're going to come back, but to see people you love run away in fear, and no matter what you tell them and you've told them, they're, they're, they're scared, they're afraid. You don't have to be. This is good what I'm doing. And Sunday is coming. See, in the suffering of Christ, we see the full weight of the nastiness of sin. This was made necessary because of one sin in the garden. One sin brought the curse of sin into creation and affected everything. One sin made the suffering of Jesus necessary. One sin brought a gulf and division between God and man that could only be bridged by one person, Jesus Christ. God is that holy and righteous and just that just one sin necessitated this. This. God, give us your view of sin. How abhorrent it is. How dividing and destructive it is. How dangerous and life-robbing it is that we would never shrug our shoulders at one sin in our life. That we would hate the sin in us with as great a passion as he hated having to lay the sins of humanity on his son. That we would see sin as you see sin. That we would pray for each other and help each other and lead the way in repentance and turning away from sin and turning to Jesus continually. Feel the weight of the suffering of Christ on our behalf. See the weight of the suffering of Christ on our behalf for our sins. But also see the joy. See the victory that is present. Like This is not a man who's kind of resigning himself to his fate. You know, like when you go to the dentist and you got to have dental procedure done. You know, just give me the gas, knock me out, get it over with, get it done. You know, this is miserable. Or watching your kids as they get old enough to understand what shots are. And so you, you eventually bring them to the doctor and, and they know it's coming. They hate it. It doesn't matter how much ice cream or toys you're going to buy them after it's over. They hate the thought of that needle going in their arm. And they eventually get to this point where they just submit themselves to the authorities and, all right, put it in me. This is not Jesus. He's not just succumbing and resigning himself to the, this fate that he has no control over. He, he's saying, don't give me any wine. Don't give me any myrrh. I want to be fully aware of what I'm embracing. Because this is victory. <clears throat> this is a king willingly, lovingly giving his life and suffering in the place of the people, so of his people, so they can be saved. This is the God-man willingly, lovingly leaving the safe confines of glory, coming down into our mess, taking on our sin, entering our suffering, a suffering that we caused because of our sins, suffering with us, suffering for us, and doing everything necessary to one day fully alleviate all suffering. He's ministering to the very end, as we'll see next week. Several years ago, I preached a sermon uh, walking the church I was at through the theological ramifications of what was happening on the cross. And we, Jesus is our sacrifice, and Jesus is our substitute. He's our redemption, our justification, our propitiation, our expiation. 
He is our ransom, our example, our reconciler. He is the revelation of God's holiness and God's love, grace, and mercy. And Jesus is also the conquering, victorious king, Christus Victor. Colossians 2, 13-15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that has stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It appears that Jesus is the one being shamed, but what's really going on is Jesus is triumphing over our enemies, canceling our record of debt and sins. This is victory. This is joy. This is our king winning, even though it appears that he's losing. So see the joy and the hope and the victory of Jesus on the cross, suffering on our behalf, especially when we consider the reality of suffering in our lives. Like, I think we have a pretty good grasp of suffering. Those people who are part of the Crossing Church, just from knowing you and conversations we've had over the last three years. But I never want to assume that. Like, I was 17 years old when my, the little safety bubble of Christianity popped for me. It's not that I didn't have hardships growing up, and it wasn't because people around me weren't suffering. That, that was going on. I just didn't think it applied to me. I thought we were pretty safe from the really bad things in life. Sure, some difficulties, but the really bad stuff, that doesn't happen to God's kids. And then when I was 17, I had a really good friend of mine go through some horrible stuff happened to her. And that bubble popped. So I never want to assume everyone gets this. For sure, maybe in this room, definitely in our culture in the city of Monroe, there's great misunderstanding and confusion about suffering. Some fall into this fatalistic camp where suffering is inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no real hope beyond suffering unless good fortune shines on you or you luck your way into a cure or into money or something else that can alleviate some of your suffering. But you just kind of, it's going to happen. Just kind of go along with it. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe it won't. Fatalistic. Some work hard to do everything they can to alleviate as much suffering as possible. So I eat healthy, I live in homes with locks and security systems, I arm myself, I protect, I be on guard, I keep everyone safe, uh, and maybe, just maybe, I can keep suffering away from me and my kids and our family. Some even adopt a, a false gospel to protect themselves from suffering. If I believe, believe enough, do enough religious things, and maybe God will spare me of some suffering. I can make him happy enough, and then maybe I'll get out of some suffering. This is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. False gospel. Some have the ostrich approach. You put my head in the sand. If I don't talk about it, acknowledge it, and then it's not very real. Like even some Eastern religions go so far as to say that suffering is just an illusion. It's not really happening. The reality is we all suffer. We have suffered. We will suffer. We are suffering right now. It's partly the human condition because we are born with bodies infected with the curse of sin that will not always work the way that God originally designed them to work. But we're also born into a world infected with the curse of sin so that everyone suffers. No one is exempt. We don't get pass. So you can't adopt a false religious belief and treat God like a pagan deity 
thinking if you do enough good works, he'll be happy enough with you and spare you some suffering. You can't arm yourselves enough, buy a home isolated enough, stockpile enough military rations, or vote for the right people, or be wealthy enough to keep suffering at bay. You're still going to suffer. We will all suffer either because of the fact we are sin-cursed people in a sin-cursed world or because of self-inflicted wounds. We'll suffer at the hands of ourselves. Sticking our heads in the sand, pretending it's not real. But I don't talk about it. It's not real. does not demonstrate to the world around us that we really believe our Father is good and will care for us. It's a belief that I am sovereign over my life and I can make things okay. And if I talk about it, if I'm honest about it, then God may not handle this situation the way I want him to handle it. So I'll just pretend like it's not real. Like some of even pagan, this paganized view of God that you shouldn't even talk about it. Like it's, it's like talking about a no-hitter in the fifth inning. You're going to jinx yourself. You know, it's kind of like people saying, you never tell God what you're never going to do because that's the thing he's going to make you do. I'm never going to Africa to be a missionary, God. I heard that. You're going. Get on a plane. Gotcha. Don't talk about suffering and dealing with suffering because then you'll suffer. Please, let's quit treating God like he's a pagan deity and see him as a good father who loves to take care of his kids. And you and I, if if we don't struggle with some of that, and I'm sure we do, we definitely will encounter those mentalities among the people to whom we are sent with the gospel. And we have this great opportunity as the people of God in our city, in our missional communities, to declare the goodness and grace and wisdom of God, even in the midst of our suffering. Not in this forced, fake, uber-religious, happy, clappy, I'm suffering, but we, we have this Teflon exterior where nothing seems to bother us. We're just all smiles and joy and full of, of pithy, spiritual coffee mug sayings all the time. Having a healthy perspective on suffering gives us the strength to walk through suffering in faith and in deep joy and hope, but we're also not afraid to weep and mourn and be righteously at times angry at the pain and suffering we or people we love are walking through. To hate it. God hates it. It's okay to experience and express sorrow at suffering. It doesn't mean you don't have faith. Sometimes it stinks. While still having this deep down settled countenance of faith and joy and hope. This is what we see on the cross. Glad sorrow. Sorrow at the reality and pain and suffering that Jesus endured because of our sins. But gladness because he willingly, lovingly embraced this. So that he could be the one to pay the price for our sins and glorify his father in heaven. And eventually dissolve all suffering. So as we rub shoulders with people in every area of life, we can help them not be afraid of suffering or at least deal with their fears and openly understand the reality of it and grieve with them and help them shoulder that burden while we proclaim the gospel. To tell them that the most unjust suffering anyone has ever experienced was this. And that he came and he suffered for us. He suffers with us and provided a victory that will one day eliminate suffering and sometimes 
sometimes miraculously, may possibly alleviate some suffering now. Joanne Terrell, an African-American writer, she wrote years ago, was quoted in Time magazine, that even though she was raised in Christianity, she eventually walked away until one day reflecting on the cross. And she said this, I realized Jesus not only suffered for us, but suffered with us. I suddenly realized that he knows what it's like to be under the lash. He knows what it's like to stand up to those in power and pay for it with his life. He knows what it's like to be a victim of a corrupt judicial system. Jesus suffered injustice, oppression, and powerlessness. John Stott said this, I can never believe in God if it wasn't for the cross. In a world filled with injustice, how could it be possible to worship a God who is immune from it? Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Jim Elliot, who was one of the four missionaries killed in 1956 when they landed in Ecuador to reach the Akua people, got off the plane, killed, dead. These men were eventually, these Indians were eventually reached with the gospel and still have a, a gospel presence to this day. But these four men gave their lives to be part of making that happen. His wife, Elizabeth, continued to live and write and, and up until two years ago when she went home to be with Jesus. In her book called A Path Through Suffering, she writes about Edward Shalito. Edward became a believer after studying through all the various religious options that were out there and that were available in the world, eventually found the truth of Jesus Christ to be the most compelling because of how it dealt with suffering. No other religion embraces the reality of suffering nor provides the greatest remedy for suffering like Jesus in Christianity. He wrote a poem, and at the end of the poem, he writes this, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds... Only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but thou alone. Only our God has wounds. Only Jesus has wounds, because only Jesus came to save a people with wounds, a people who suffer. First Peter 1, 6 and 7, in this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have a faith that will be tested as you are grieved by various trials. Various trials, that's anything. Trials because you have sinned and made a mess of your life. Trials because you are suffering because of the sins of others. They all call us to grieve. And it's all part of testing our faith and proving that our faith is genuine. It's not that God needs to know that our faith is genuine. He knows. It's so that we know our faith is genuine. When you talk to people who are steeped in the Old Testament about trials and testing and being tested by fire, their mind, Old Testament, goes immediately to Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three young Jewish boys taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in one of the first captivities by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar builds this 100-foot golden statue of himself and calls on all the people when the music plays to bow down. And if you know the story, these three young men, hundreds, maybe thousands of people are bowing down. They're not bowing. 
So maybe they didn't understand. Give them another opportunity. Maybe they didn't understand. Bring him to me. And he talks to them. And they basically tell him, we, we don't need to discuss this, King Nebuchadnezzar. Either God will deliver us or God won't deliver us. Either way, we're not bound down to your statue because we only worship one God. And in anger, he throws them into the fiery furnace. He did seven times hotter than before, killing men who were outside the door. And in Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar says, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Our God has wounds. Our God walks with us through the fire. He's not aloof and distant. He is with us in our suffering. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When we come before his throne of grace, we come with confidence for whatever we need because we are coming before a God who knows us and our suffering and our pain intimately. This is the hope that we have to offer those around us who are suffering and in pain. A God who has come down to us. A God who has provided his people, the body of Christ, to be with us. We don't have to walk alone. He's given us each other. He's given himself through the body of Christ. And what makes the suffering of Jesus unique is that at any moment he could have ended it. He could have called it off. He could have come down off the cross. He could have called 12 legions of angels just to come wipe everybody out. It's over. You're dead. He had that kind of power. But Hebrews 12.2 tells us we run this race. We're created and called to run with endurance. Why? Because we're looking to Jesus, who what? Is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, more than anyone else, saw beyond the cross to the joy. Saw beyond the suffering to the joy. And for us as children of God, there is always joy beyond the suffering. It's always going to get better for us. That may mean this physical body dies, but then it gets really good, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul said in Philippians. To live is great. We get Christ. To die is even better because we get to be with Christ in his presence. Jesus saw beyond the cross to the joy, the joy of completing the work of redemption, the joy of glorifying his Father, the joy of full and final and total victory, the joy of Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Not Abraham, not Paul, not Peter, not Moses, not Ruth, not the old widow who gave her two mites. No one was worthy. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Wait, wait, wait. The elder just told him in verse 5, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. When John looks, he looks and sees a lamb. This is Christ, the lion and the lamb, who has been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus saw this. And endured the suffering for this joy set before him. And we get to be a part of that. We're not going to look back on earth and think that those sufferings are anything compared to the eternal weight of glory that we're going to be experiencing forever. This is a hope that comes from no one else but Jesus Christ. We have it. See the suffering. See the joy. Believe in Jesus. He has conquered your sins. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. What he endured that we get to share in. What he suffered so that we could have life. Our city is filled with hundreds and thousands of people who don't have this hope, who don't have this joy who are suffering from their own sins, who are suffering at the hands of the enemy, who are suffering wounds and brokenness. And here we are as your people, and there are other gatherings of your people around this city that you are sending to them with hope, with truth, with grace and love. Father, help us to believe and live with life and joy and hope beyond suffering so that we can be sent to these who are far away from you. For the glory of the Lamb who is slain. We pray.
Amen.